Hey, everybody. Welcome to Behind the Slate. I am your host, Aaron Strand. What you're about to hear is the first of two special episodes that I recorded with Greg Kleinschmidt of the Seen and Heard podcast. Now, on the day of our recording, we actually recorded this episode second. So there are some instances in what you're about to hear where we make reference to the previous podcast that we had recorded that day. Now, I will ask you, dear listener, to please consider these obvious continuity errors as simply teasers for next week's episode. Having said that, please enjoy the show. Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmakers is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Greg, if there's one thing I know about you, it's you're a huge NFL fan. <laughs> oh, yeah. What's your, who's your favorite team again? The, the Boston Beans. Beans. Baked Beans. Ah, yes. I love the Boston Beans. Yes. Yeah. Baked Beans. Boston Baked Beans. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who can forget their classic Super Bowl moments in 1976? Oh, tell me about it. So you must be so excited to know that the NFL playoffs are starting this weekend. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm, listen i'm over the moon i've already called called up all my friends i'm doing a whole spread you know appetizers and stuff i'm i'm going all out for it what can i say fantastic well i thought it would be fun that in honor of the nfl playoffs that we'd have a little playoffs of our own and greg you wouldn't believe it this is such a coincidence i can't even believe it myself marvel studios reached out to me all right because they have a problem their Phase 8 cinematic universe, it's not going very well. Martin Scorsese's criticism has really hurt their bottom line. <laughs> you know, And to make matters even worse, they're running out of characters. And they're having to dig deeper and deeper into the Marvel archives for new stories. And that's why, this is what they told me when they reached out to me, they're making a movie about one of their lesser-known heroes... The Phone Ranger. Are you familiar with The Phone Ranger at all? No. <laughs> well, Why don't you tell me. I'm shocked <laughs> as such a Marvel fan. So this is the synopsis of The Phone Ranger, okay? A.G. Bell was a telephone repairman who was sent to fix a phone that, unknown to anyone, was actually acting as a prison for a small race of aliens known as the Celtas. Okay. Bell found the Celta's technology in the device, and he then used the alien technology to create a suit that gave him incredibly lackluster abilities. <laughs> While wearing the suit, Bell was able get this. This is this is a real character, by the way. While wearing the suit, Bell was able to connect with any telecommunications device <laughs> in existence. <laughs> A fax machine. <laughs> a pager. <laughs> enabling him, this is very serious, take this seriously, enabling him to be the first responder to any 911 calls. Now, he decided to use this incredible talent to fight crime as a superhero, the Phone Ranger. The only problem is, is that he's just an ordinary telephone repairman. He has no other abilities except <laughs> that he can intercept telephone calls. Okay. Now, here's the thing. 
Marvel has invested a lot of money to try to up their artistic integrity of their films. And they've actually invented a time machine, okay? And why they need our help, why they came to me and the Arroyo Podcast Network <laughs> is because they want to use this time machine to go back in time and hire any director from the past to pitch to become the director of the Phone Ranger and save Marvel's Phase 8 cinematic universe, okay? <laughs> but because they've spent so much time and effort into developing the time machine and, of course, writing their fantastic scripts, they never bothered to watch any old movies. So they needed experts that's to know- That's why we're here. That's why we're here. <laughs> exactly. Because we're going to go back in time to pick the greatest directors from history and put them into the first ever behind-the-slate Pitching playoffs. Cue the music. So the way this is going to work, Greg, is the, we're going to use the NFL playoff format, which means that we each pick seven directors, okay? In the first round... Uh, they will go against each other roughly in this order. Your um, your fifth seed will face my fourth seed. Your third seed will face my sixth seed. Your seventh seed will face my two seed, and on and on and on. Now our number one seeds, you know the 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 best of the best, they have earned a first round bye week, so we they won't be revealed until the next round. All right. So we're gonna go through this first round. Here's how it's going to work. You're going to I'm going to tell you which director you're going to announce. You're going to announce the director, you're going to talk a little bit about their work, and then you're going to give their pitch for the Phone Ranger. Got All it. right? And then I'm going to give my director and their pitch, and because we don't have a referee, a referee or a judge, we're just going to have to convince each other as yeah. to who advances. I think it'll be pretty obvious in the course of of the events, okay? Yeah, maybe. How does that <laughs> Well, it'll be Charlie Chaplin versus Buster Keaton. <laughs> well, we know who won that one. Well, yeah, uh, we do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, do, do you have any questions before we start? No, no, I think I got it. All right. All right. Great. Um so, uh without further ado, Greg, would you please announce and pitch your fifth ranked director? My fifth. Okay. All right. So my number 5 is <laughs> okay now granted when i made my list i really took the you know marvel wanting to up their artistic integrity i took that all the way okay okay, okay. so my first director is a hungarian animator named marcel Jankovics. <laughs> most famous for his film the son of the white mare which if you haven't seen is incredible one of the all-time great animated movies. It's a very sort of trippy, psychedelic piece of crazy animation. Animation is fucking crazy, but it's based on a folktale, a Hungarian folktale, and it's just, it's it could be nothing else than a piece of animation. It couldn't be a book. Well, I mean, it's passed on. It's, it was already a story, but this film, it's like such a case for like, that's why you make a film and that's why it's animated. Wow. That, wow. Yeah. Wow. This would be Marvel's first animated feature, I believe. Yeah, I guess so, because they didn't do the Spider-Verse movie. Maybe that was Sony. That's Sony. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. What a risk. They should step it up. And not just their first animated movie, but it's going to be hand-drawn and psychedelic. Oh, my God. Wow. Okay, are you ready? I'm so ready. Okay, so this version of the film 
the pitch is it's an animated Fantasia about a prophet from a faraway land who journeys to the land of phone (laughs) (laughs) in order to save his kidnapped daughter. Once he arrives, he's greeted by a nefarious troll who informs him that the only way his daughter will be released is if Bell saves 50 people from death in the next 24 hours. Wow. Beaten down and defeated, Bell screams to the heavens for a solution. A giant... (laughs) I can't even get through this without laughing. A giant majestic bird swoops down and, and imparts him with a glittering necklace made of jewels. As long as he wears this around his neck, the bird explains, he can hear the cries and pleas for help from everyone in the kingdom. He then goes on to save 49 of the 50 lost souls. Okay. He's one short. Yeah. But hoping the troll will overlook this shortcoming, he returns and asks for his daughter back. Oh, no. The troll instead murders his daughter in front of him and throws her body off a cliff. Oh, my God. Bell then murders the troll and assumes its position as ruler of the kingdom. He remains a bitter, vengeful ruler who blatantly ignores the pleas of help he hears in his head. Oh my god. <laughs> wow. Why he I'm st- I don't know what to say. Why didn't he murder the troll from the start if he had the the ability? Uh, I think, you know, he wanted to prove it to himself that he could do this. Ah, yeah. Yes. His pride. He wanted to earn his daughter back. Oh, you know? pride got in it's the pride. way. Yes, yeah. of course. It's old world pride. Wow. That's incredible. Well, that's going to be tough to top. And uh, what was his name again? Uh, Marcel Yankovics. Marcel Yankovics. Or is it Jankovics? I'm not sure in I don't Hungary know. if the J is Ya or Ja. <laughs> I have no idea. But I've never seen any of his movies. However, I do know he'll, who he'll be facing off against. <laughs> the bad boy of Danish cinema, oh boy. Lars von Trier. Oh my God. Oh my God. I love it. <laughs> of course, von Trier made a splash in the 90s with his groundbreaking Danish television series, Riget, aka The Kingdom. He then founded the Dogma 95 movement with Thomas Vinterberg, which aimed to strip all pretense and expense from cinema. And then he would go on to make huge psychosexual melodramas such as Breaking the Waves, uh, the genius musical Dancer in the Dark, and then more recently, the shock value films such as Antichrist, The House That Jack Built, and Nymphomaniac Part Volume 1 and 2. Okay. In Von Trier's take, which (laughs) if I could do a Danish accent, I would, but I'm not going to. Uh, Okay. A.G. Bell is a genius crime solver, but the long hours and disturbing crime scenes have hurt his marriage and pushed Bell into a deep depression. And worst of all, he's become sexually impotent. (laughs) (laughs) Hoping to feel something, anything. He begins using his telecommunications abilities to listen in on phone sex conversations. <laughs> but when he's caught by his wife, she asks for a divorce and moves out of the house. Bell begins listening to his wife's erotic conversations with other men, and he rediscovers his sexual drive. <laughs> but the more he listens, the more he learns just on how unhappy his wife was in their marriage. And now he must decide to stay a telephone cuckold or win back the love of his life. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. That's great. Um, Two very different takes. Very different takes. <laughs> very different takes. Are we? Should we judge it based on the film that 
would get the highest or the biggest audience or is it just the the highest level of artistic uh ingenuity well you know marvel went into this exercise demanding artistic excellence right however i do feel that they always come back to the bottom line <laughs> they can't be trusted with their artistic integrity yeah so i feel like you know we got to try to find the marriage between artistry and money making and I got to say, I think it's uh, old Yankovic, Weird Al Yankovic over there is uh, has beat Lars. Maybe. Yeah, I, I, I'll take it. Sure. I mean, I, <laughs> when you described his necklace as glittering, <laughs> that was the word that did it. It had me. Although I have some feelings you might be getting some notes about the uh, double murder. Mm, well, toward the end. <laughs> I hope I, I hope. uh I hope he can. I hope. I hope Marcel stands his ground. That was my own invention too, because um, well, not to spoil anything, but his previous films don't necessarily have some bleak ending. That was just my own little spin there. Oh wow, yeah, that was all Greg. <laughs> wow, you're fucked up. <laughs> okay, all right. So Marcel advances. All right, all right, Greg. Now it's your third seed versus my sixth seed. All right. Would you please unveil your third-seated director? Yes. So my number three is Jack Hill, famous black exploitation director, most famous for Coffee and Foxy Brown, starring the queen of action cinema, Pam Greer. Of course. Uh, so this brings a black exploitation vibe to the story. Uh, so Belle, in this case, is a woman played by Pam Greer who is straight-laced and works for the phone company. But her brothers get mixed up with a group of gangsters, and her entire family is killed in a shootout. Oh, my God. After taking some hallucinogenics (laughs) from her bartender friend, she goes on a rampage through 1970s-era New York City with a sawed-off shotgun, picking off each gangster one at a time to avenge her family. Holy shit. So it's just Pam Greer. It's another revenge story with Pam Greer being a badass. Dude, that sounds fucking awesome. Uh, I would genuinely want to see that movie. <laughs> Me too. Uh, that sounds fucking great. Wow. Uh, that is that is tough. Pam Greer will be facing off against Ishiro Honda. Oh my God. <laughs> How did I know you were going to do one of these? <laughs> the Japanese director who was a workhorse for the Toho Studios in the 50s and 60s, churning out over 44 feature films. He created and directed the longest running franchise in cinema history, which is a big draw for Marvel. Of course, I'm talking about the Godzilla franchise. Marvel, no doubt, hopes he can bring his franchise longevity to the Phone Ranger. <laughs> okay. In Honda's take ag bell is a scientist who has worked many years to perfect the celta's telephone technology with his devoted and beautiful assistant suki played by kumi mizuno of course but when the final test of the suit goes wrong dr bell ends up being exposed to a massive amount of radiation causing him to grow at an exponential (laughs) rate Meanwhile, a different alien race, the Zogdians, have come to Earth, (laughs) promising to share their advanced telepathic technology, rendering Dr. Bell irrelevant. As Dr. Bell grows, the army tries to put him in a cage. Only Suki stays by his side. But the Zogdians betray the leaders of Earth, unleashing a giant monster, Zogdia, to destroy civilization. 
Suki frees Dr. Bell from his prison, now standing almost 400 feet tall, and he tracks down Zogdia for a giant monster battle. His telecommunication abilities have developed to the point where he can disrupt the Zogdian's telepathy and defeats Zogdia, but in the process drowns in the ocean, leaving a grieving yet devoted Suki behind. Oh, man. <laughs> That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Again, two completely different approaches. <laughs> yes. I mean, how do you even compare? I don't know. I think the franchisable nature right. of Honda <laughs> is going to be pretty attractive. I would say you're probably right. To the reps at Marvel. I would say you're right. You mean they don't want to do drugs and black exploitation and sawed off <laughs> shotguns? <laughs> it sounds like a risk. <laughs> uh I might think Honda has this one. I think you're right. I think because he directed so many films in the series and just genre, he did so many tokusatsu kaiju films. That's like, uh, you know, and you're right. It is the longest running series. Yeah. Which is very cool. Yeah. Okay. Honda advances to the next round. All right. So now it is your seven seed versus my two seed. <laughs> okay. My number seven. <clears> hmm. <throat> So I've picked Jim Sharman, who is most known for directing the Rocky Horror Picture Show and its spiritual successor, Shock Treatment. Uh, so this one, this is a rock musical take on it with, with music by Richard O'Brien, who, of course, did the music for both of those. Uh, so in this one, Jessica Harper stars as a used car salesman who's down on her luck after she's dumped by her boyfriend. On the way to visit her mother in Florida... She stops at an old carnival on the side of the road and goes through a house of mirrors. Oh. Once inside, she experiences visions and people calling out to her, needing her help. She frantically tries to escape but bumps her head on the glass, which opens a trap door to the subterranean world under the carnival, and she falls inside. Dropped into this strange new land, she, she answers a telephone, which then feeds songs into her ear. <laughs> <laughs> She's given a quest by a strange voice on the other line. She must find 10 musicians in this dream world and get them together in a band. <laughs> her journey leads her to each musician as they perform for her, and then she convinces them to tag along. Think Wizard of Oz meets Cats, but with a rock vibe. <laughs> wow. Wow. That is... Uh... You know, definitely some risk involved there, you know? I don't know. It's pretty surefire to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, considering that he couldn't even capitalize on the success of Rocky Horror with shock treatment, which was sadly dismissed and still continues to kind of be dismissed. Uh, because maybe it's not great. It's it's not as good as Rocky Horror, but the music's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. It is good. Yeah. It is good. You know, I mean there's some built-in problems that like a lot of his work was like maybe better on the stage than in the films. But... I will stand by the fact that the Rocky horror picture show, the film is a masterpiece. Okay. <laughs> a lot of people think they're like, Oh, you can only see that in the theater with people screaming at the screen. And like, that's the way to see it. No, no, no. Just want to watch it. Just people are quiet. Just want to watch the movie. <laughs> like the movie's great. <laughs> movie works great on its own. Okay. Okay. I hey, I respect it. I respect it. Well, <clears throat> he will be facing off against my number two ranked director, 
the Russian master of slow cinema. <laughs> oh, no. Andre Tarkovsky. <laughs> of course, Tarkovsky is known for exploring spirituality and faith through films like Stalker, Solaris, and The Sacrifice. <laughs> okay. All right. So we're going to put ourselves in a very different headspace. I can't think of a more different headspace no. that we will enter into. All right. A.G. Bell has made the suit. <laughs> but instead of listening for first responder calls, he begins picking up mysterious frequencies in which he hears a monotone voice repeating places and names followed by a series of numbers, <laughs> such as Genevieve, three, six, four, Arrowhead, nine, <laughs> ten, fourteen, and on and on. Much to his desperate, starving wife's dismay, he becomes obsessed with listening to the voice. A strange man, simply known as the Seeker, shows up. He's heard the voice too, and believes that these messages are actually the code of God. The two of them go on a journey to find the source, debating the nature of God and art along the way. You know what? I'm going to go on a limb and say Tarkovsky. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what do you think uh what do you think decided that one? I mean, you know, Tarkovsky's going to make a proper film. Jim Sharman's going to make a, you know, campy fun little rock musical, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's funny the way that I leaned into the campier stuff because the premise of this superhero is so ridiculous. So I was like, well, the only way to do it then is to like make a complete farce of it or could go on this other plane. But I like the Tarkovsky angle because it's that's like what Nolan tried to do with the Batman movies, you know, legitimize them. And um, I mean, I still think made the best of the superhero fair. No, the Nolan Batman movies. I mean, they're better than the fucking four Avengers or whatever. Uh, Yeah, they are. But that's not saying much. <laughs> that's true. I listen. <laughs> I'm not here to defend the Nolan Batman. I, you know what? I think. Just as a brief note, I think that they're way too serious for their own good and that he sucked a good amount of fun out of the superhero film that we're still kind of reeling from today. Oh, yeah, that is so true, though. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. I mean, the, Nolan's uh, yeah, Nolan's Dark Knight is now Robert Pattinson saying, Oh, God. The city's eating itself. Did you see that? Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, Give me a break. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just stop. Yeah. We're not here to trash other things. Yeah, 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 yeah. We've once again gone down a very negative rabbit hole. But let's ha let's have faith that Andre can oh, he pull will. off what Nolan couldn't. <laughs> okay, we are now moving to the other side of the bracket. In this case, I will go first uh, in, in naming my pitch. So it'll be my fifth seed versus your fourth seed. Okay? All right. My fifth seed is Alina Wertmuller. Okay, mm. the Italian genius who made such genre-bending, socialist-minded films in the 70s, such as Seven Beauties, Swept Away, and The Seduction of Mimi, uh, and Love and Anarchy. Okay, in this take, A.G. Bell, played by Giancarlo Giannini, of course, of is, course. A, is a lonely phone company employee where his amazing telecommunications suit is ridiculed and ignored by bosses and colleagues. But when he uses his powers to interrupt the burglary of the beautiful yet cruel CEO of his company, played by Mariangela Melato, he falls madly in love with her. Eschewing class and business practices, the two begin having a passionate affair. 
but could it be that the CEO is just using him to gain control of the suit? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Uh, I like that take. Thank you. It's a good take. Thank you. You're actually the one that introduced me to Vert Mueller. Really? Well, I'd, I'd heard of her and I'd never seen one. And for the film club, you suggested the, se- the seduction of Mimi. Yeah. And so that was my first of her films. And mm. uh, yeah. That one's pretty wild. Have you seen uh, Seven Beauties or Swept Away yet? No, I haven't. Oh, man. Those are the two like best ones I know. for sure. And they're, so good. they're so good. They're so good. It's great, too, because I only knew Giancarlo Giannini as like an old man in the, the Bond movies. And to see him in his prime and oh. like just doing his thing, it's great. I, yeah. I honestly think I like put him up there as far as like my like top five actors of all time. Wow. I think him and like Tashira Mifune oh. are, are like- Who? oh boy okay greg my number four your number four okay so my number four is edgar g ulmer who is sort (laughs) of you know him of course he did detour most famously so a lot of noir and he was kind of a workman like director through the 40s and 50s and 60s i think and kind of went underappreciated in this time but has since become like a lot of people hold him in high regard. And Detour, if you have not seen, is an incredible, oh, fantastic, not just a great noir, but just a great film. And again, it's like 70 minutes long or something. Like exactly. Amazing performance by Anne Savage in that one. Holy shit. Yeah. That yeah. is one of the great sort of like femme fatales. In fact, she's number one. Has to be. I think she's number one. No. Because she's so, she's like a fiery furnace. She's no. just like. She's not number one. Come on. <laughs> Barbara Stanwyck in, in Double, Double Indemnity. Indemnity. Come yeah. on. I mean, she's great too. <laughs> I, w- I just think that like, I mean, she's amazing. She's amazing. But that part also like it, it, I think it does kind of like top out at the third act where she like just gets to a certain level of sort of evilness and like doesn't quite like bring back the sympathy Right, for her sure. character, which is not a, a, a slight on the actress at all. In fact, I'd probably credit Ulmer with that yeah. kind of yes. top out. But whatever. But Detour's amazing, and he's amazing. And the his biggest thing is like he'll bring you in under budget and ahead of schedule. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is the noir version Ooh, of the phone ranger. I'm excited. So bringing in his noir sensibilities, this one's a more straightforward version of the story um, with Belle as like an everyman. Okay. So the antagonist in this one is Dangerous Debbie, who's an ex-lover that Belle left at the altar. Oh. (laughs) Working herself up into a rage, she listens in on his phone transmissions and sends a team of goons out to each location in attempts to thwart Belle. The film ends with a final transmission, but this time it's her. She's caught on the 13th floor of a burning skyscraper. He re- he shows up and rescues her and tries to mend the pieces of their relationship, giving her a big smooch. But <laughs> she doesn't want anything to do with him, and she slaps him across the face, sending him stumbling backwards and falling to his death off the skyscraper. Whoa. Wow. Because as you remember, Detour also does not end very well. No. <laughs> no. No. He's, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's a but that's a, that's a darker ending than Detour, where he's just arrested walking down the side of the road. <laughs> yeah, well, but no, I love it. I love it. I honestly, I mean, while I think Vert Mueller would be an interesting choice, she has some baggage. She has some communist sympathies, <laughs> which might you know, which uh-huh. might ruffle some feathers at more nah, at Marvel. Nah, <laughs> <laughs> plays great in China, and um, uh, but I. <laughs> 
No, I. But I think the Ulmer take, and you know, Noir's very in right now. It is. Um, I I think Ulmer might might have this one. All right, let's do Ulmer. Yeah. Wow, I concur. All right, so now my third seed versus your sixth seed. <laughs> my third seed is you may not have heard of her. She's just a little filmmaker named Chantal Ackerman. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> The Belgian filmmaker who explored feminism, LGBTQ characters through her fiercely independent films, such as News from Home, I, You, He, She, and the undeniably greatest film of all time, Jean Dielman. All right, here's Chantal's take. A.G. Bell, Alexandria Bell, with an E at the end, <laughs> is a... <laughs> is a widowed housewife burdened with a regimented schedule of mothering, cleaning, running errands, and of course, boiling potatoes. <laughs> she, she waits for the next emergency call because she's already built the suit. But in her small Belgian town, the emergencies are few and far between. So she continues to mother, clean, run errands, and boil potatoes. And when she does show up for the infrequent crimes... Her efforts are undercut and demeaned by the patriarchal police officers. Okay. Her frustration slowly builds until after receiving a call about a minor traffic accident, she arrives. But when she's confronted by a police officer, she murders him and leaves a potato <laughs> stuck in his mouth. <laughs> oh my God. That's great. I love it. You said my number six it's going against? Uh, yes, yes, you're number six. Okay, well, my number six is Doris Wishman. So this one, this one is, so you may know Doris Wishman as the B-movie auteur, the, the, probably the most prolific female filmmaker of, uh, independent female filmmaker. Her career started in the 50s and went through like the, I think even the 2000s. Wow. Uh, I think she died like 10 years ago or something, five, 10 years ago. Uh, so this film is in the style of one of her early 60s nudist films. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so this take on the material has Bell transported inside the telephone handset. Oh, wow. Where he discovers a nudist colony living inside. <laughs> <laughs> As you can tell, semi-based on her classic Nude on the Moon from 1960, early 60-something. Uh, so after wandering around in this weird twilight world asking for directions to which he receives no real help, he's seduced easily <laughs> and presented with an outfit the group has made for him. It's his phone ranger costume. Whoa. He then wakes- Wait, wait, wait. Hold on, oh, hold on, hold on. They're nudists, yeah. but they've made him a suit? They've made him a suit, because he's not one of them. He's an outsider. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, he then wakes up in his own bed at home. It was all a dream. Whoa. Just as he goes to make his morning cup of coffee, he sees his phone ranger outfit peeking out from behind his dresser. No real crime happens in this version. That's the whole movie. <laughs> ah, so it's a bit of an origin story, a it's, prequel. It's an origin story. It's him wandering around inside the phone with a bunch of nudists for most of the movie and him not getting the help that he needs. <laughs> mm. Well, 
I do see an R rating coming their way, which you know Marvel avoids at all costs. That's true. That's true. That's true. But I will argue that Chantal might be a little too slow for the <laughs> for the Marvel audience, maybe. That's true. You know, they they came to see some sensationalism, and uh, I would argue that a nudist colony would provide a certain level of uh, sensation. I can't believe you would accuse Miss Ackerman of <laughs> Look, being slow. I mean, I love her. <laughs> but, you know, the average, uh, you know. I, these are, yeah. it, no, your you're, you're take definitely, it adds a lot more razzle-dazzle. <laughs> but you don't get a potato stuffed in someone's mouth. Well, I mean, why not? I mean, <laughs> we could steal that from, <laughs> from Chantal's treatment. True. Just stick it in there. <laughs> I think I think I think uh, I think. Wait, who, who's you? Uh, Doris Wishman. Doris Wishman. Let's do it, Doris. I've actually I've actually never seen a Doris Wishman movie. If you see one, uh, I don't know. There's not necessarily one. The best movie she made that I've seen is a movie called Deadly Weapons, Ooh. and it stars. Oh, a, isn't it there? Well, so it's a woman with uh, you know a very uh, you know uh, buxom buxom woman yes. who she's a secret agent and she smothers people between. You know, actually, uh, yes, I have chest. seen that movie. So yes, so, <laughs> <that's great. laughs> yes, the movie's great, of course. <laughs> Doris Wishman, wow. Okay, what an upset. <laughs> uh, a Cinderella story, as as they call it. <laughs> okay, um, for my number seven seed against your number two seed. All right, my number seven seed is David Cronenberg. Oh, I thought about him. I thought you might. I thought we might have some overlap here, so I'm glad I just went for it. Um, okay, the master of body horror, of course. Who's and I'm going to draw from his more '80s films, of course. You know, Videodrome and The Fly, uh, giving us some of the most disturbing images ever seen. Okay, in this take, Ag Bell teams up with fellow scientist Melanie Hachimura to make his special telephone suit. But the more he uses it, the more Ag becomes addicted to listening to the 911 calls. <laughs> whether or not he actually shows up. Okay. Gradually, the suit begins to fuse with his body, causing horrible, unrelenting pain as the alien metal fuses into, sticks into his flesh. He and the suit become a single, anguished entity, and the deeper it goes, the more his ears are filled with the millions of phone conversations happening across the world all at once. <laughs> He begs Melanie to kill him and end his suffering, but her feelings for him and her obsessive hope of curing him prevent her from doing so. The longer she struggles to find the cure, the worse A.G.'s pain becomes. Well, that's great. That's great. <laughs> I mean, how could you not? I, I mean, it's something. Yeah. It's something. Yeah. I'd love to see him tackle something like that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My number two? Yes. All right. So this is Jiang Changhua, who um, <laughs> most famously made an incredible film called The Five Fingers of Death, which of is one of the all-time great martial artist movies. Yeah. So and if you've seen Kill Bill, you've yeah. seen a knockoff of The Five Fingers exactly, of Death. Exactly, exactly. Kill Bill even uses the music from Five Fingers of Death. Oh, yeah. Some of the music. Yeah. The... Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And this, you know what? This was a newer discovery. I saw this in the last year and like never has a movie so delivered on its premise of just like 
literally like half this movie is just like people fighting. Oh yeah. They deliver the goods. Oh yeah. You get it. Yeah. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. It's fantastic. It's everything you'd want in a martial arts film exactly. from, from the seventies. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So in this take, Bell is a martial artist who moonlights as a trapeze artist in a traveling circus. Oh wow. One night there's a loud bang and he misses his jump and falls into the crowd. Knowing he has an unsavory past, the circus owners take him to a mad doctor instead of a hospital, and he's given a special hearing aid that's meant to help restore some of his hearing. As soon as it's in place, he hears the cries of people in danger and jumps to his feet with a new purpose in life. <laughs> Bell is now an unstoppable force, a fierce martial artist with a superhuman sense of hearing. He mows down mobs of fighters in his quest to rescue all of those in need. <laughs> So it's five fingers of death again with a different setup. <laughs> with a hearing aid. <laughs> yeah, with a hearing aid. <laughs> oh my God, that sounds awesome. There was a, I don't remember which of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies it was, but there's one where the, the this kid has a hearing aid. And so in the nightmare, Freddy like, he he makes the hearing aid, like it becomes like this David Cronenberg organic thing that like flesh like melds with his ear and it's huge and it's like spidery and then freddy krueger takes uh you know his his knives and he's like scratching them alongside metal and the kid's ear starts pulsing and explodes whoa <laughs> yeah damn uh, so he so, so ag bell has a weakness in yeah this one. <laughs> <laughs> sensitive ears yeah well, I mean, that's, man, that's fascinating. That definitely, I mean, that aligns with a lot of what Marvel wants to accomplish. That's true. That's true. I couldn't help but be enticed by the the Cronenberg version with the suit melding to the body. Um, and of course you get the human element, you know, because it's like yeah. his, his partner slash lover is like fighting to save him despite his cries for her to kill me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's a tough one. This I think this is the hardest decision I think we've we've faced. Yeah, because you know that Jiang Shanghua would deliver a wall-to-wall crazy fucking action movie. Absolutely. I have a feeling it would also play very well in markets that they really want to. It's true. <laughs> I'm sorry. I got it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I given some of of course I did say that we would be pulling from Cronenberg's 80s work, but given some more recent Cronenberg films and their box office, box office performance. True. It might be a bit of a demerit on uh, old David. <laughs> I mean, if they were solely looking for artistic value, they would get it more from Cronenberg. But, you know. Marvel can't be trusted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is a nice compromise because we're slipping in like a a true art form in the martial, martial arts. arts, the Chinese martial art film. Um, or was that was that made in Hong Kong? Good question. I believe so. Hold on, let me just check really quick. Yes. Well, we're slipping in some true art from at least a, a Hong Kong martial arts film. I think. I think that. I think it's got to take the cake. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that is round one. So coming out of the out of round one, we have Marcel Yankovic's. <laughs> okay, he will be facing off against my number one seed. We have Ishido Honda facing off against Andre Tarkovsky. <laughs> okay, then on the other side of the bracket, we have Edgar G. Ulmer 
<laughs> facing off against your number one seed. Okay. And then Doris Wishman <laughs> is facing off against Zhang Chenghua. Oh, great. Okay. Wow. You really dominated that side of the bracket. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe we should switch the number one seeds around so that my number one seed faces off against okay. your side, the bracket you dominated. Okay. okay. All right. So now uh, facing off against Marcel Jankovics. 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 One of those. Facing off against weird Marcel Jankovic. Uh, Greg, would you please unveil your number one seed and their pitch? Okay. My number one pitch is Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> this is the first, right when I heard this premise, I'm like, this is some Charlie Kaufman stuff right here. Okay. So if, obviously if you don't know Charlie Kaufman, he is most known, most well known as the screenwriter, uh, being John Malkovich adaptation. He also directed some movies like Synecdoche, New York. Uh, his newest film was I'm Thinking of Ending Things, and he also, of course, wrote Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind. Yes. So and Anomalisa and Anomalisa. And, yeah, that was great too. I always forget about that one. That's fucking great. Yeah. So in this puppet one, sex, exactly puppet sex. <laughs> but the only problem with Anomalisa is the second it started, I was like, these puppets are gonna fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and then when they did, you know, all I can think about is Team America. And yeah, I mean, you know, this is the the tasteful version. <laughs> it the sex in Anomalisa is taken so seriously that in the theater, like I started laughing. Oh, I, yes, like, I broke out laughing. Yeah, there was. I think there was like two other people in the theater. We all cracked up. <laughs> yeah, how could you not? I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyway. Anyway. Okay. So in the Charlie Kaufman version. Bell is a middle-aged loser who works for the phone company <laughs> and is super socially awkward. <laughs> After fumbling a series of dates due to his low self-esteem, he's randomly chosen to be a guest on a reality dating show. Oh my god. While a contestant on the series, he discovers a race of aliens living inside his iPod shuffle, because this is 2005. <laughs> And they communicate only through pop songs that are on his iPod. After he pieces together their technology, he takes up the mantle of the phone ranger as a persona for the dating series in order to make himself more desirable. The only problem is nobody actually believes his powers are real. And after this charade goes on long enough, they have him institutionalized while still filming him for the series. We end with him still receiving the world's transmissions, but unable to do anything about them, haunted by the voices inside his head. Holy shit. Wow, that is a number one seed. That is incredible. I love it. I love it. He was the first person I thought of. That's amazing. You know who I you know who I, I really see playing? I see so it, it can be set in 2005, but obviously it will be filmed in like 2027. I see this as the Michael Sarah comeback. Vehicle. Oh my god, totally. You know, like a middle-aged Michael Sarah is now like ready to come back into our hearts playing a Charlie Kaufman protagonist. Yes, I see it yeah. so clearly. I almost put Spike Jones, but I feel cuz Charlie Kaufman's directing his own stuff now. He has been for, you know, I don't see he last worked with Spike on adaptation. Or no, Where the Wild Things Are? Or no, he didn't do Where the Wild Things Are. No, that was just Spike. So yeah, it's been Spike, like yeah. 20 years since they collaborated. So that's yeah. why it's just just Charlie Kaufman. Oh, great choice. Thanks. Great choice. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> that's incredible. So we have Kaufman's facing off against Marcel. Um, I'm I'm just gonna say it. Kaufman just wipe wipe the floor yeah, with him. Yeah. Uh, his number one seed was like so worthy. <laughs> you know, he really hits like all because it's like 
it's uh it's really so he hits all the beats that i think they're looking for like that he brings that artistic edge he brings like a thrill a minute twist and turns and he's like kind of staying true to the premise you know they might just want to fit in like one little like fist fight yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> Where, and there's no double murders you know there's no betrayals yeah uh i i mean, it's amazing Amazing. Strong <laughs> performance by Charlie Kaufman. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Okay. All right. So now we're moving on to the bottom of the bracket. It's Ishido Honda versus Andre Tarkovsky. Boy. I don't quite know. <laughs> um, I mean, you're bringing like the peak of artistic integrity. <laughs> Yes, literally. Like, like, the, like the artistic, the patron saint of cinema, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and pairing him with a workman franchise builder, uh, who's but who's also like in many ways like derided by like the majority of people as kind of like making these like goofy joke movies. Yeah, even though at the time they were like big entertainment. Right. Yeah, that's a tough one. I, you know, I think that Honda was like second camera or something on uh, some Kurosawa in the 80s or 90s, right? He was second camera on Stray Dogs. Stray Dogs. Wow, and okay. Kurosawa uh, credits him as like really bringing sort of like the gritty uh, real, uh, you know, kind of like real life feel of Stray Dogs. I believe he shot, there's like a, 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 a giant montage sequence when uh, Mifune goes out like looking for the gun in the first act, or I guess maybe in the beginning of the second act. It's like eight minutes long. And I believe that uh, Honda shot most of that montage mm. on the second unit. Wow. And Kurosawa was like in love with it. And then, of course, Honda retired. And then when Kurosawa got funded to make his like later masterpieces, uh, Kagamusha and Ron and all and Dreams and everything, he brought Honda back as his like closest assistant. That's so cool. Yeah. Kurosawa's just so wonderful. He's just so and great. unpretentious. Yeah, yeah. Like the like the I would love to hang out with Kurosawa and Honda so bad. And then like you know they'd be like calling up Satya Ray to like hang out. <laughs> oh, totally. That was also like the bromance, like old oh man God. friendship that I wished I was invited to. Same. <laughs> I love that Kurosawa has a sense of humor and doesn't take it too seriously. Because there's you know the story of uh, that movie, The Score. I believe I've never seen it, but it has uh, Marlon Brando and uh, I think Edward Norton. Directed by Frank Oz. Yeah. So Frank Oz is most known for, well, the voice of Yoda, but also he's Jim Henson's Muppet. So he does Miss Piggy. He does Fozzie Bear and stuff. And apparently, I don't know if you know the story, but Marlon Brando, who was notoriously difficult to work with, would only call Frank Oz, the director, Miss Piggy. Yes. (laughs) Just like demean him and not talk to him and stuff. So it's like, that's one example of like him not... and. Frank Oz had so proven himself as a filmmaker at that point. You know, he'd done like Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. He'd done Little Shop of Horrors, which is great. He'd done a lot of like gems here and there. And Brando just couldn't see past the Miss Piggy. And uh, anyway, I just appreciate that Kurosawa was, uh, you know, cool. <laughs> I just appreciate that Kurosawa was not Marlon Brando. Yeah. Yeah. Same. <laughs> <laughs> well, it still doesn't answer our question of Honda v. Tarkovsky. God, well, so completely different takes. Um, I see the Tarkovsky version, and I think that would be one of Tarkovsky's great sci-fi films. But I also see the uh, the Honda Tokusatsu film. 
I do think though that, you know, given Tarkov, like some of Tarkovsky's, maybe not his later work, which gets like really artsy, but like the stuff for Moss film, mm-hmm. it does like it does bring the sci-fi edginess, and maybe with like a little, if he's a little bit willing to give at Marvel's behest to just like kind of up that element of danger, which is so present in Stalker and is like so wonderfully subtle that maybe Tarkovsky gets the edge because he does bring that sort of like, you know, marketable, but like artistic edge. Right. Like he's almost commercial, like Solaris. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, honestly, I wonder, speaking of Honda, you know, Godzilla movies were, really popular at the time uh-huh. and are remembered as jokes as like mystery science theater jokes. Will this not happen to fantastic fucks and whatever the, <laughs> whatever else Marvel's turn, been churning out? Will they not in 40 years? Will they not? If someone can get their rights beyond mystery science theater, 8,000, you know, as, and like being riffed on. I think you have something there. I think that the, uh, the Godzilla movies have way more integrity too. Like they'll be viewed in kind more fonder light. I mean, I, I mean, I, uh, you don't have to convince oh, me. Oh no, I know you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just feel like maybe Honda has like, if they, since the, the whole pretense is that they're coming to us looking for another direction, you know, and Honda, I think like can execute the Marvel formula, but I think they're trying to do a little bit more. Yeah. I think Tarkovsky might have it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Tarkovsky. Wow. I feel good about it. Wow. Setting up for a Tarkovsky v. Kaufman showdown. (laughs) Oh, my God. In the semifinals. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. But before we get to that, we've got to go to the other side of the bracket where Edgar G. Ulmer is facing off against my number one seed. You might have heard of him. Stanley Kubrick. Oh, man. I mean, pulling up the big gun. Yeah, you went, you know, you went with some really deep cuts on this one. <laughs> some real hipster directors, Greg. I mean, I love it. I love it. I was just trying to uh, not have any overlap, and I was trying to think of, you know, the same thinking of uh, Robert Evans when Robert Evans was putting together Rosemary's Baby. He's like, who can we have do this? He's like, oh, how about the guy that just did uh, Cul de Sac, uh, this Roman Polanski guy? And it's like, at the time, that's like pretty out of the box thinking. I think out of the box thinking is what brings us our greatest films. Fantastic take. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I'm loving what you're bringing to the table. Well, you're facing up against the the grandmaster here. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Do I need to give a bio for Stanley Kubrick? Obviously, you know, he reinvented basically like every genre. He reinvented sci-fi with 2001: A Space Odyssey, comedy with Doctor Strangelove, and horror with The Shining, and period pieces with Barry Lyndon. And noir films, heist films with oh the killing. Oh my god! Every he did everything except the musical. Maybe. Oh god! We if we had the Kubrick musical. Oh my god! I would be so happy. I just now realized like how incredible that would be. That'd <laughs> be fucking awesome. We'll have next year's pitch playoffs. Will be all musicals. The war film with Pads of Glory and oh my full, god, Full Metal Jacket. Great points. Yes, he he double reinvented the war film. Yeah. Paths of Glory, that like one of the true anti-war films ever made, and that it doesn't actually show combat. Yes, yes, I, I'm just unbelievable. Okay. Oh, and the erotic thriller with eyes wide shut. Yes. <laughs> he did almost everything. Okay. <laughs> Glad we were all on the same Kubrick page. Now. <laughs> okay. Here's Kubrick's pitch. 
Ever since A.G. Bell used the Celta's technology to create his suit, life has been going very well. But when he listens in on a phone call that seems to detail a high-level government conspiracy to kill its own citizens, he springs into action. As he goes down the rabbit hole, Bell is faced with a horrifying series of twists and turns that lead him to the question, could it be that the Celtas are actually using him to destroy his own government in preparation for their global takeover? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know? And thinking about Kubrick, like the style, right? The style, the music, the look of the film. Whew, that's a doozy. You know, he's kind of like, in this one, he's really doubling down on his, like, government. He's taking the, like, erotic thriller conspiracy element of Eyes Wide Shut, bringing it into, like, the rooms of power with Dr. Strangelove and creating this, like, deeply unsettling portrait of the modern world in a style, I imagine, that's a bit more like 2001. It's sort of like the loneliness and vastness of, like, modern bureaucracy. Yeah. It's a bit like uh, uh, Eyes Wide Shut meets Brazil. Oh, my God. I love that. Sign me up. (laughs) Well, both of those movies uh, have Christmas in common. So just throw Christmas into this one, too. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Of course. Yes. (laughs) It's a Christmas movie. At Christmas. Yeah. A.G. Bell. <laughs> uh, I'm As much as I love Detour and Ulmer, I'm going to, you know, vote, cast my vote for Kubrick because it's Kubrick. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of the Trump card, right? Like, what really beats that? Was that cheating? <laughs> no, Was it cheating to cheating. play the Kubrick card? It's not cheating. Okay. Okay, good. Okay, good. <laughs> I mean, in number one seed. I mean, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. No, no, no. I Believe me. Kubrick has defeated poor Mr. Ulmer, who has to go back to his $10,000 budget. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh. He was looking to break out. He (laughs) finally get the respect he deserves. In his lifetime. Which leads us to our final matchup of the quarterfinal round. Doris Wishman versus Zhang Changhua. I mean, I probably Zhang. You know, yeah, Doris Wishman's movie is a piece of, you know, it's a piece of kitsch. It's a piece of nudist kitsch. Uh, You know, people she worked throughout her whole life like she was continuously making movies. So she was making the money that they needed, even though the movies were made for like five dollars each. But (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I'd probably say Zhang Chenghua for this. Sorry. I, I do think that also, like, American audiences are ready for another, like, true throwback. God, what's the name for, like, Hong Kong uh, action uh, action films? What what are they called? Uh, wuxia. Oh, isn't wuxia more like... Uh, my understanding was that wuxia is a very specific type of film. They're usually period, and they're usually uh, gravity-defying swords... It's sort of more of like an imperial thing. Oh, I could be wrong though. No, you. I think you're right. Like uh, right. King Hu and stuff like that, and Hu Shaoshen, like the assassin stuff like that. That's what I thought. No, I can't remember. Is are there any magical elements in Five Fingers of Death? Yeah, there's like a thing where his hand lights up or something. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I think there's like some kind of magical element yeah, to there it. Is. I mean, they're all in most of those movies. There is something. Yeah. But, uh, maybe it is. I don't know. Well, 
Okay, whatever. <laughs> Kung Fu movie. All I'm saying is that I think that American audiences are ready for like another like more th- traditional throwback style like Kung Fu movie. Do you know what American audiences are ready for? What? To see people actually <laughs> trained at their craft killing it uh, and not just the CG fuck fest on screen that you can't even tell what's happening. Uh, there's such a thrill from seeing those old like Shaw Brothers movies and stuff where people are actually fighting and like this is they're amazing at it and like we don't get that like yeah you see like the rock or something train and he's buff in a movie but he's not doing crazy moves no he's just buff yeah and that's something that's sorely lacking from american films which we just don't have that we don't have these specialized fighters dancers basically we don't have them yeah it's, a, it's also so strange that that was something like there's so much 90s nostalgia content out from like millennials making movies, but just due to lack of talent, I would imagine there are no like Jackie Chan nostalgia pieces, you know, like throwbacks to like the great 90s martial arts comedies. Jackie Chan. Pff, Jesus. Dude. Jesus. What a baller. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Jackie Chan is amazing. He's like a modern day Buster Keaton. That is such a great take. It came to my mind at the exact second you said it. I'm jealous that you said it first. Jackie Chan is the modern day Buster Keaton. He is the true inheritor of Buster Keaton's legacy. And honestly, I should be ashamed for ever bringing up Michael Bay in the first place (laughs) because Jackie Chan is the inheritor of Buster Keaton. There we go. Wow. I feel good about that. I feel great about that. I'm so glad we got to the bottom of this. Um, Yeah. Having said all that, I think it's uh, probably pretty clear that Jung Ting-Hwa over Doris Wishman yes. has defeated Doris Wishman yes. with yes. several kicks. And I'm punches. actually surprised that Doris Wishman survived this long. <laughs> she went up against. Who did she go up against? I don't remember. Chantal Ackerman. <laughs> oh, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Doris. It's been fun. <laughs> Which you know, Greg, I'm a little sad. I'm a little sad here because it means that our number one and number two seeds are facing off on both sides of the bracket. Wow. All the Cinderella stories have been defeated. Oh, man. It's the way it goes sometimes. It's all right. I it's mean, okay. cream rises to the top sometimes. Yeah, exactly. It's just is what it is. Okay. Well, we are on to the semifinals. Pitting on one side of the bracket, it's Charlie Kaufman versus Andre Tarkovsky. <laughs> on the other side, Stanley Kubrick. Versus Zhang Zhenghua. Oh, man. So, <laughs> Kaufman v. Tarkovsky. The battle royale everyone's been thinking about. <laughs> I mean, it's funny how much, I mean, you know, my my vote for, goes for Kaufman. I mean, how could you not vote for your number one? But also, literally, when I heard this concept, I was like, Charlie Kaufman. So, for that reason alone, I think he's so... I almost said Edgar Wright because Edgar Wright has the action stuff down. Mm. But I think that Kaufman's imagination, just his like unfiltered imagination is like, would just do wonders for this. And yeah. he is accessible enough. Like, you know, I think most people like his films. Maybe not Synecdoche, New York, or I'm thinking of ending things. I think those might be a little on the deeper end, but it's in terms of Eternal Sunshine and being John Malkovich and Adam, like those are accessible movies. Well, it sounds like people like his movies when someone else directs them. That's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Even though I, I mean, I love Synecdoche, New York. Sorry, it's so good. 
Yeah, I that was one of the that's one of those experiences that I remember um a friend of mine brought me to a theater in New York and uh I didn't really know anything about it. I was kind of like living on another planet at the time and like we went and watched the movie and it just unfolded like a miracle. Yep. And I remember we like left the theater, my me and my buddy Court and he like we just couldn't stop smiling and looking at each other and just being like, I can't believe that just happened. Like, I can't <laughs> believe what we just saw. What did we just see? You know, it's just one of those like pure bliss yeah. theater experiences. I love that. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Now, I hear you. Now, on the Tarkovsky side. Right. I mean, it's Andre Tarkovsky. Who's that? <laughs> <laughs> I Has know. the man made a bad movie? No. No, absolutely not. Nothing approaching even has mediocre. He, has he had puppets have sex? No, <laughs> he is not. Has he even imagined a puppet having sex? You know what? His loss. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hold Anomalisa against Kaufman. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> it seems a good movie. It's okay. Um, it's Andre Tarkovsky, man. Like, I know, I know. This is like the most unique filmmaker maybe ever who was able to capture both modern both like popular audiences and like the ultra art critic like art house people well he was able to cap capture um, public audiences in a very different time in the world you know true in a very different place if Andre Rublev came out now, it wouldn't necessarily be a uh, huge smash, <laughs> to say the least. Sure. Um, but but would he ever make Andre Rublev now? I mean, Andre Rublev is so, like, of its time, and we also have to think about the Soviet censors and, like, how movies like that get made. But what I will say for Andre Rublev is it demonstrates his ability to do action. That's true. That he that he true. could bring to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> Think of all the horses he could light on fire <laughs> in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, I mean, like, it, it, he. I think that that is actually a demonstration of his vast range. Yeah, that it's not just like nostalgia and the sacrifice and carrying a candle off of, across an Italian. Cool. And you know, I think that's my favorite Tarkovsky. <laughs> my favorite Tarkovsky is like the most Tarkovsky movie you can find. <laughs> Although, but we both, we know we both feel the same way about The Mirror, which I totally agree with you that it's like not my favorite Tarkovsky. And I do feel like that is the most Tarkovsky Tarkovsky. Yeah, maybe. that That's true. Because that one has a lot of himself in it. It's autobiographical and stuff. I, I, I don't dislike them. I want to see it again because it's haunting. It stays with you. Oh, for sure. Yeah, but it still remains to be said that the other thing I'll say for Tarkovsky, he we know he can deliver art with a lot of bureaucratic oversight. That's true. And we know that that's going to happen in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, can Charlie hold up to the pressure <laughs> to the to the hundred million dollar <laughs> pressure to deliver not just a competent phone ranger, but a phone ranger franchise? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, look, this is tough. Um, I will agree that Charlie Kaufman's directorial efforts are a little more obscure than, you know, like the Spike Jones ones or the Michelle Gondry's. But 
I I just think he has like the right mindset for this story. I mean, look, they're both good pitches because the Tarkovsky one you can see being like I imagine reading that synopsis and being like, oh yeah, that's like the eighth Tarkovsky movie. But at the same time, Kaufman, yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, they're both good. <laughs> I don't know. Um, let me ask Charlie a question. <laughs> Would Charlie be open to working with Spike Jones? Could they bring Spike Jones in? You know, let's just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Has Charlie reached a point of his directorial career where he just wants to get his next movie made? Because if he, because let's just say, if Charlie Kaufman, Co- if, if the Phone Ranger written by Charlie Kaufman, directed by Spike Jones, is a hit, Charlie Kaufman's got all the money to make whatever weird fucking movie he wants. Yeah, true. And that's his whole thing right now, right? Like, no one will give me money to make my movies, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait. No, that's my thing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, let's just... Sure, Spike Jones is directing it. Spike, wow. Off a Charlie Kaufman script. Spike Jones, Charlie Kaufman. The gang is back. gang is back. Well, I think that might have pushed it over the edge. You think so? I think so. Kaufman, the Kaufman-Jones combo. You know, it just occurred to me, thinking of like dual directors, I can't believe you didn't have Powell and Pressburger on your... Yeah. (laughs) You know why? Because I could never see them making something like this. But uh, yeah, any chance to advocate for the archers, I usually take, but not this time. All right, so Kaufman is on to the final with Spike Jones. (laughs) In tow. Yes. Kaufman Jones. Now we have Stanley Kubrick facing off against Jung Cheng Hua. I mean, look, you have one of the all time great filmmakers, and then you have a guy that's going to deliver a lot of great kung fu action. It just depends which uh, which direction you want to go in. I, I do feel like this kind of repeats a little bit of our Ishida Honda. Tarkovsky fight. Right. Whereas we know Zhang Qinghua can deliver. We know that super confident brings an artistic touch to his uh his films. You know what? You're right. Like if someone <laughs> you sell a script, right? And they're like, okay, who do you want who do you want us to attach? Zhang Cheng Zhang Chenghua or Stanley Kubrick? You're gonna be like Stanley Kubrick, of course, because it's Kubrick. <laughs> Let me think about it. <laughs> <laughs> Unless your name is Stephen King and you're a little bitch. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Kubrick. It's got to be. It's got to be. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Imagining myself as like an executive making this decision. Yes, it's Kubrick. Assuming I can get them for the same price. Yes, it's Kubrick. <laughs> price is not an issue at Marvel. Yeah. Um, well. It brings us to our final, which somewhat climactically, but also non-climactically pits our number one seeds against each other. Charlie Kaufman (laughs) with direction by Spike Jones (laughs) against Stanley Kubrick. I think I I honestly I think for this I think we should reread the pitches. Okay, I need I need I need to I need to get back into the world. Let's do it. Okay, All right. So for Charlie Kaufman, this is the pitch. Bell is a middle-aged loser who works for the phone company and is super socially awkward. After fumbling a series of dates due to his low self-esteem, he's randomly chosen to be a guest on a reality dating show. While a contestant on the series, he discovers a race of aliens living inside his iPod shuffle, because this is 2005, 
and they communicate only through pop songs that are on his iPod. After he pieces together their technology, he takes up the mantle of the Phone Ranger as a persona for the dating series in order to make himself more desirable. The only problem is nobody actually believes his powers are real, and after this charade goes on long enough, they have him institutionalized while still filming him for the series. We end with him still receiving the world's transmissions, but unable to do anything about them, haunted by the voices inside his head. Wow. What a pitch. (laughs) What a story. What a story. And the dating show, like, it really brings in this, like, modern element that's like so fantastic satirical like yeah because he always does stuff like that he's you know also like can you imagine no let me what kind of dating show do you think he would be on do you think it's like so assuming that because man you've got a lot of attachments on this pitch because it's Kaufman (laughs) directed by Spike Jones starring Michael Sarah well you came with the Michael Sarah bit I, I did. No, it's true. They're attached. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, no, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> right, theoretically. Right. Yeah, so yeah. Imagine like a th- like a almost 40-year-old Michael Sarah. Do you think he's on a sort of like love is blind like yeah, no, no. type situation where he's the awkward old guy with a bunch of like <laughs> like young hotties or whatever? Yeah, because on those shows, they get a lot of like mid-30s women with like mid-20s guys. And what happens is it's a recipe for disaster because the women want to settle down and the guy's like, I'm like 25, like I'm trying to go crazy. And so they, they, it never works out. But uh, yeah, it should be Michael Sarah, and he should be like the oldest one on there. That's I think that's the key. Oh my god! <laughs> oh man, I love it so much. It's so good. Okay, I'm, Stanley's Stanley's reading his notes. Okay, he's getting ready. <laughs> uh, okay, those are my pitch, uh, Stanley Cooper. Okay. Um, ever since Ag Bell used the Celta's technology to create his suit. Life has been going very well. But when he listens in on a phone call that seems to detail a high-level government conspiracy to kill its own citizens, he springs into action. As he goes down the rabbit hole, Bell is faced with a horrifying series of twists and turns, and left with the question, could it be that the Celtas are actually using him to destroy his own government in preparation for their global takeover? See, your pitch is an Alan Pakula movie. That's Parallax View or something, right? <laughs> it's a it's a it's a paranoia thriller, which I love, which I love. But, but, what's the key word with a big blockbuster superhero movie? Fun. The word fun. <laughs> That's that is true. That is true. <laughs> Although I will say that. I know I know we disagree on this. I don't like Parallax View. Oh really? I think Parallax View lacks heart. Well, sure. I think it lacks <laughs> any quality resembling human <laughs> nature. And uh, worst of all, I think it is a series of rather tenuously held together action scenes that plod from one to the next. <laughs> I'm not left with any questions at the end of each of them. I'm just like, okay, well now this is happening and like now we're at a dam and like now we've like ripped off Clockwork Orange. We didn't even mention Clockwork Orange in Stanley Kubrick's breakdown. Oh right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, can't uh, can't mention them all, I guess. Uh, so I resent the comparison. Honestly, <laughs> this is not Parallax View. See, I was okay. paying you a huge compliment because I love Parallax View. <laughs> <laughs> I like how uh, 
not seemingly connected everything is like it is just kind of like one set piece after another one bizarre thing after another i like how kind of like episodic it is but you're right there's no heart there's no humanity in it although it's kind of the point but uh i get how you'd be like yeah you know like that's fine it's fine it's so true because so as soon as you so what ran through my head is that as soon as you said that i was like oh shit me stanley kubrick (laughs) <laughs> did not add like any other characters like in this story like, right there's no love interest like there's no nothing but then now i'm thinking like but stanley kubrick doesn't have other characters in his story he somehow manages to tell these like very lonely stories and yet they don't feel like one scene just kind of plodding along to the next although is that right I just I just argued that as if I as if it was an un- irrefutable fact, <laughs> and now I'm like, well, actually, like the relationship with Hal is like pretty interesting. Yeah. Jack and Wendy and Danny, yeah, Tom and Nicole, uh, Matthew Modine and Vincent D'Onofrio, and Arlie Ermy. Yeah, I I mean, there's always a central character, and then there's like people that they're kind of playing off or um, Barry Lyndon and Lord Bullingdon. Oh God. <laughs> Um, I feel like this is a fatal flaw in Stanley's pitch. Here's what I'll say. That pitch almost sounds like a Nolan film, which turns me off immediately. Stop. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> you have compared <laughs> Stanley Kubrick's pitch to Parallax View and Christopher Nolan. Or you know what it sounds like? It sounds like Pi. <laughs> the Aronofsky movie. <laughs> actually like pie oh do you yeah i need to see it again what do you have against pie i just i don't like aronofsky at all in all fairness it has been like 15 years since i've seen pie so i i'd need to give it another watch i think pie is great i I mean i think pie look i give pie the same pass that i give following i mean it's like i think he made it for 100 grand right like in his like buddy's like brooklyn like storage room you know also i'm such a sucker for black and white 16 millimeter i mean it covers up so many it does holes yeah uh but i think pie is really good and it, it pie delivers on the paranoia in a very uh real way i'll take another uh, look at it yeah i'm overdue yeah give pie another try most of his stuff that i've revisited i've been like oh my god <laughs> yeah i i have kind of felt the same way like requiem i can't believe i used to like requiem for a dream I still think Requiem is good. I just don't want to watch it. it it's you know what? It's not terrible. <laughs> I'll give it that much. <laughs> um, but yeah, but, I just you know. Well, okay. Here's the thing about here's my take on Requiem. I just wish it was Ellen Burstyn's movie. Yes, because who cares about like Jared Leto? And it's like that is so uninteresting. You know, the thing that kills me is that the Jared Leto um, Jennifer. Conley relationship is so superficial and vapid and like it, it's not about the true sort of codependent junkie love struggle which like it should be about and because these stories are running in parallel it's also not really about Jared Leto's relationship with his mom which is like the more probably the most interesting relationship of the film right also I just hate Jared Leto but yes <laughs> but really like the lost opportunities within the Leto Connolly relationship where they're so much more interesting on their own particularly Jennifer Connolly with her like mm. whoring herself out for dope is like so it's like such it's it's so gut-wrenching so like you really feel it I mean we can we can all imagine those scenes right because they're so palpable and so Honestly, what I'm advocating is just cut Jared Leto from the movie. We don't need him. <laughs> we don't need him. But we need more Ellen Burstyn, who is, right. I would argue, 
the greatest American film actress, maybe. Wow. I mean, she's great. She's great. She just had a birthday a couple days ago. She doesn't fully get her due, too, because she's one where, like, yeah, people know her from The Exorcist and stuff, but, like, she's incredible in everything. And she's done so many movies. Alice doesn't live here anymore. Uh, The King of Marvin Gardens. It's like, Jesus Christ, the range. And just the dedication to the roles are, like, she's on another level. Absolutely. And does, does not phone it in. I mean, just like... Although, she's about to phone it in. Did you hear what's happening? (laughs) She's doing like a new Exorcist movie, and she literally said, she's like, I'm just doing it because the the payday was right. (laughs) So, wow. But you know what? You know, (laughs) I want her to have a nice retirement, so if that's the cost, then sure. How old is she? I mean, she's got to be up there. Yeah, probably. So get paid. Get paid, girl. Yeah, get paid. I'm all for it. Yeah. I'll still see it. (laughs) 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 Yeah. If you put Ellen Burstyn in the Kubrick pitch, maybe uh, <laughs> my vote goes to uh, to Kaufman and Jones, but uh, I could be swayed into the the Kubrick one if you if you sweeten the pot a little bit. Here's the thing: is that Mr. Kubrick is very you know he's very secretive about his productions. <laughs> this is the only details he's given me oh, about the man. pitch. You know, he's added in no other characters. And he's not picking up my calls. <laughs> Ironic, considering the t- content of the film. I do feel that given the sort of roller coaster ride of Charlie Kaufman's The Phone Ranger with Spike Jones directing, the championship has to go to S- Charlie Kaufman and Spike Jones. I agree. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. That's it. That's it. This has been. The first annual Behind the Slate pitching playoff. The winner is Charlie Kaufman with his film, The Phone Ranger. Wow. Uh, let's just round of applause for Mr. Kaufman. Whew, we did it. That's incredible. Yeah. Great work. Yeah. Great, great work. work. Great pitches. Yeah. I kind of hoped one of the lower ones would sneak up at the last round, but you know, hey. They were number one for a reason, right? Better luck next year yeah. is all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's all for this episode of Behind the Slate. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. Uh, listen to Seen and Heard, Greg's podcast that he co-hosts. And come hang out with us uh, on the Arroyo Film Club every Thursday. Follow the Arroyo Film Club Instagram to know what movie we're watching that week. And then come hang out on Zoom. And until next week, that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>